and welcome to the reading of the Des Moines Register for Sunday, May 3rd, 2020. I'm your reader, Jenny Rector. Things are changing very quickly, and Iris wants to make sure we provide our listeners with as much information as we can. In order to do that, we have changed our program schedule completely. This schedule will air statewide on all platforms until further notice. We will also include information about resources in your community during each paper. You'll still hear your Des Moines Register each day at 9 a.m., 6 p.m., and 1 a.m. Please listen closely to the following changes for all other newspapers. The Fort Dodge Messenger will be read at 7 a.m. Monday through Friday. The Mason City Globe Gazette will be read at 8 a.m. Monday through Friday. Your Des Moines Register will continue to be read from 9 a.m. until noon. The Cedar Rapids Gazette will be read at noon seven days a week. The Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier will be read at 1 p.m. seven days a week. The Dubuque Telegraph Herald will be read at 2 p.m. Monday through Friday. The, the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil will be read at 3 p.m. Monday through Friday. The Sioux City Journal will be read at 4 p.m. seven days a week. The Ames Tribune will be read at 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. And the Midweek Shopping Cart will be read each Wednesday at 9 p.m. Recordings of all newspapers will be available on our podcast page. Just go to iowaradioreading.org, click Listen Now, then click Listen to Iris Podcasts. The papers are organized by region, and each paper will be available for seven days. As things continue to change, we will announce schedule changes each hour at 56 minutes past the hour going forward. Keep yourself safe, and thank you for listening. Now, let's take a look at today's weather. It will be a bit warmer today, with sunshine breaking through the clouds for the afternoon. The clouds will remain patchy tonight before the next chance for storms comes back tomorrow. Today's high will be 76 degrees, and our low will be 50. And then tomorrow will be cloudy, cooler, and stormy, with a high of 60 degrees and a low of 48. And now we'll head over to the front page of today's register. We begin with treating COVID-19, a marathon, one mile at a time. While Iowa healthcare providers worry about their own increased risk as they try to save lives of others, many fear the dangers could surge if Iowans ease up on social distancing precautions amid the pandemic. Andrew Chang watched as a COVID-19 patient appeared to respond to treatment at his Waterloo Hospital. Hours later, Chang saw the same patient need resuscitation. Chang, who works at Mercy One Waterloo Medical Center as a resident physician completing his medical training, observed the patient being transferred to the intensive care unit. The patient died the next day, he said. It can be the patient is doing okay, and then in a matter of hours, things change so quickly, he said. Chang still replays in his head how an emergency physician who had cared for the patient reacted. She came back crying, Chang recalled. She was like, this is going to be our new normal. People are going to look like they're doing okay, and then suddenly everything will change. Chang is among the hundreds of Iowa doctors, nurses, and other healthcare workers treating thousands of patients with COVID-19, which is surging in nursing homes, meatpacking plants, and other areas where people gather close together. Black Hawk County, home to Waterloo, has been particularly hard hit with more than 1,000 confirmed cases and at least a dozen deaths. Healthcare providers worry about their own risk as they try to save the lives of others. 
and many fear the dangers could surge if Iowans ease up on social distancing precautions. A sudden influx in social interactions is all but certain to cause a spike in new COVID-19 patients and potentially overwhelm our healthcare system, the Iowa Medical Society, the state's largest physicians group, warned the public in April. No area of our state is immune from these concerns. Until an effective treatment protocol is identified or a vaccine is discovered, we must accept that we will not be able to return to the normal routines we enjoyed just a few months ago. Chang and other healthcare workers say they had prepared for a deluge in cases of the respiratory illness, but there is still an emotional toll. Physician Sharon Duclos, co-director of the People's Community Health Center in Waterloo, said care providers have struggled to connect with frightened patients. The doctors and nurses are in gowns, masks, and face shields, and the patients have masks on. People want some compassion. People want some empathy. People want some answers, and that's hard to do, she said. Many of her clinic's patients are Tyson meatpacking plant workers with limited English skills. The clinic's 10 interpreters are busy keeping up with translation needs for patients speaking languages such as Spanish, Bosnian, French Congolese, Burmese, or Karini, which is spoken by some refugees from Southeast Asia. Duclos has served the clinic, which is supported by federal grant money and focuses on patients with few resources, since 1993. The physician began to cry on the phone last week as she described treating dozens of patients from Waterloo's working-class neighborhoods. Many of them are immigrants, struggling to give their families a foothold in this country, she said. Now they're bearing the brunt of this new disease. They already had enough issues, and then this hits them, she said, her voice cracking with emotion. It does become kind of overwhelming. People's Community Health Clinic occupies a two-story building in downtown Waterloo, about three miles west of the Tyson plant. The clinic's employees have set up a separate area for patients with respiratory issues, and they limit how many people are inside at once. The waiting room is generally empty. Many patients wait outside in their cars until it's time for their appointments. Some of the clinic's recent patients are the worried well who fear that every day symptoms of allergies might be signs of the coronavirus, Duclos said. Other patients are so short of breath that the staff calls 911 for an ambulance to take them to one of Waterloo's two hospitals for immediate treatment. It can be hard to predict which COVID-19 patients might develop deadly complications, Duclos said. Many people infected by the virus lack its signature fever, she said, but their conditions can plummet, especially if they have underlying issues such as heart problems. Duclos said her staff has a decent supply of tests and protective equipment, at least for now. They hope the current outbreak will crest soon, but they know that won't be the end of it. This is going to go for months. We're going to get peaks and valleys, at least until there's a vaccine, she said. We're in this for the long haul. A leader at Unity Point's Waterloo Hospital also sees months of work ahead. We thought it would feel like a tidal wave, and it hasn't. It, it's felt more like the water slowly rising above your ankles, and then you look and it's above your knees, said Sarah Brown, an administrator and nurse for Unity Point Health. Brown oversees the COVID-19 response at the system's hospitals in both Waterloo and Marshalltown in Marshall County, another community hit hard by the virus. The Iowa Department of Public Health reported 545 cases of the illness in Marshall County on Friday. 
COVID-19 affects people in different ways. The respiratory illness typically causes symptoms of fever, cough, or difficulty in breathing. While people with mild symptoms can recover at home, older people and individuals with compromised immune systems are considered particularly vulnerable. That's evident in the spike in COVID-19 cases in Iowa's long-term care facilities. As of Friday, the state had reported 26 outbreaks at such facilities. State public health officials define an outbreak as three or more residents testing positive for the virus. Chang said he's seen COVID-19 patients at his Waterloo Hospital experience escalating conditions within hours, from having difficulty in breathing to a depletion in oxygen saturation. Then they've stopped breathing on their own. It can get pretty scary pretty quickly, he said. Chang noticed an uptick in COVID-19 patients at Mercy One's Waterloo Hospital around mid-April during one of his rotating 12-hour shifts. Representative Timmy Brown Powers, Democrat of Waterloo, is a healthcare worker helping to oversee COVID-19 testing at a Mercy clinic in town. She said over the Easter weekend, reports began to come in from constituents with concerns about safety at the Tyson Waterloo plant. So now where we're at, we are at a full community spread, she said. When I'm working, you can see all these patients, all their age groups, and where they're from. And they are from all over our community. They're from grocery stores and long-term care facilities and restaurants and family members of Tyson employees. On April 10th, local officials in Blackhawk County, including County Sheriff Tony Thompson, went to the plant. Thompson said, based on observing the company's safety practices during that visit, there was clearly more that could and should have been done. Days later, Thompson and other local officials called publicly on Tyson Foods to close the plant. The global food giant announced the plant's closure on April 22nd. At an April 23rd news conference, officials announced one of several large spikes in Black Hawk County cases. Dr. Nafisa Sis Egbonyi, director of the county's health department, has attributed most of the cases to the Tyson plant. At the time, the intensive care unit at the Mercy One Hospital and its roughly 14 beds began to fill with people getting treatment for the virus, according to Chang. Chang worries whether the Tyson plant closure came too late. On Monday, county officials announced Black Hawk had 1,326 COVID-19 cases, days after Governor Kim Reynolds sent additional COVID-19 testing to the county. State data, which lags local public health reporting, showed 1,255 positive cases in the county as of Friday. Only Polk County has seen more cases in Iowa. Separately, the governor announced that her new COVID-19 testing initiative would include a site in Waterloo. At that testing site, which opened Wednesday at a nearly empty parking lot sandwiched between a mall and an auto center, Healthcare workers in white gowns swabbed the inside of people's noses as the patients waited in their idling cars. Members of the Iowa National Guard stood nearby with signs urging people to keep their windows rolled up. From time to time, the workers took a break inside a mobile shipping container set up next to the testing tent. Tyson Food officials have defended the company's practices and handling of cases at its plants. Company chairman John Tyson published an open letter saying the company has stepped up its cleaning in its plants, added partitions and masks, and encouraged workers to stay home if they feel ill. 
I care about their health and safety, Tyson wrote. They come to work every day to feed our country with safe, sustainable, quality, and affordable food. Our team members produce food to go on family tables, in lunch boxes, in picnic baskets, for takeout orders, and wherever else you may choose to eat. As the cases of the virus mounted in Black Hawk County, Reynolds did not call on the plant to close. She said she saw the need to balance concerns over worker safety without disrupting the food supply. There's always more we could have done, she said later at a news conference, but I think we're, we've tried to be very proactive. A similar wave of illness has gripped southeast Iowa's Louisa County, home to a large Tyson pork production plant in Columbus Junction. The plant closed for two weeks after scores of workers were infected with the virus. Louisa County is one of just six Iowa counties without a hospital. The nearest ones are about 20 miles from Columbus Junction in Washington and Muscatine. The nearest large medical center is in Iowa City, 35 miles away. Many of Louisa County's immigrant families rely on the Community Health Center in Columbus City, about five miles south from the plant, which is part of a network of such clinics in southeast Iowa. Registered nurse Brianne Hammond is the, cli- the clinic's site manager. She said it's a small operation with just 15 employees normally providing a range of services, including primary care, dental services, and mental health care. That changed in the past few weeks as new social distancing rules canceled many dental procedures and routine health appointments. Then, after a lull, a wave of patients started calling in with fears they had been exposed to the coronavirus. When all of this first began in the community, there was a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety, Hammond said. We're at a point now where it's really settled into a new normal. Because Tyson is having employees tested at the plant, the clinic is is mainly testing family members or plant workers or other people who may have been exposed in the community. Hammond said the clinic's leaders are intent on keeping their tiny staff safe under trying conditions. Patients are instructed to call into the clinic to describe their symptoms or possible exposure to the virus. If the patients are severely ill, the staff will send them directly to a hospital in another county. If they qualify for a test, patients are told to drive to a tent set up outside the clinic. When they arrive, someone inside the clinic relays the information via walkie-talkie to the nurses in the tent. Very little care is being provided inside the Columbus City Clinic these days for fear of spreading the virus. Staff members keep in contact with regular patients by phone, including those with chronic health problems who need monitoring. The staff has done an incredible job of taking it one day at a time, Hammond said. Whatever comes at us, comes at us. She's not sure how optimistic to be that the epidemic will ease soon, especially as the governor brings begins lifting restrictions in other counties. I think the next week or two will really tell us a lot for this community and the whole state, she said. Matthew Sochka gets up every morning at 4.30 to run roughly four miles. He has an egg and cheese for breakfast rushing He has an egg and cheese for breakfast before rushing to the Mercy One Waterloo Medical Center by 6.15 a.m. As chief medical officer at Mercy One, Sajka has kept a routine for weeks that's included a lot of checking in with staff who are keeping a watchful eye over COVID-19 patients. According to Sajka, there were several COVID-19 deaths at the hospital in mid-April. 
Sajka said some COVID-19 patients can be on a ventilator, a device that helps a person breathe for 7 to 10 days. Sometimes it's unclear if the patients are improving. Are they going the right direction? Sajka said he thinks to himself, we're doing everything we can for him, but is there anything else that we can do to improve their condition? Are they going to be one of the fortunate ones that does recover, or are they not going to make it? Sajka described COVID-19 as a marathon. We don't know if we're on mile four or mile 20, he said. We just have to be ready to take care of these people. Still, Sajka hopes Mercy One's network means his staff will have the support to tackle what comes. While there is a nationwide shortage of personal protective equipment, he feels the hospital for now has enough supplies. He's even been in communication with Mercy One about healthcare workers in other parts of the state coming to Black Hawk County to assist with staffing if needed. Sajka said his individual outreach to staff includes letting them know about resources for mental health needs. Weekly video chats are available within the large Mercy One hospital system. Sajka worries about the safety of his staff and what their potential exposure means for their families. While Sajka did not disclose whether any staff members have tested positive for the virus, it is a top concern within the state's health care system. In early April, the state's public health department estimated more than 20% of Iowa's positive COVID-19 cases were health care workers. Sajka's daily check-ins carry a clear message. We have their back. We're here to support them. In the meantime, areas of Iowa are opening up. Reynolds is moving ahead with plans to reopen parts of the state, though areas like Black Hawk County will have additional restrictions through at least mid-May. This week, President Donald Trump ordered beef, pork, and poultry processing plants to remain open. Healthcare workers like Brown Powers are unsure about the implications of the president's order for Waterloo. We have a very sick community right now, she said. I am very nervous that this is one of those cycles that's just going to go on and on and on for us here until a vaccine becomes a reality for us. And our next article is titled, Iowans Flooding 211 Virus Helpline. The young woman's deep, rolling sobs came from her belly and caught in her throat so forcefully that even quick, shallow breaths were arduous. She had been laid off when coronavirus hit. She is a single mom of four children who lives in a small, rural town. She had tried applying for unemployment, but her application had been held up. What little savings she had were gone. She didn't know how she was going to pay her rent, let alone electricity or water bills. She didn't know how long she would be able to stretch what she had left in her pantries. Like so many, her family's future was now uncertain. All her hard-earned stability had been toppled by an invisible virus a billionth of our size, but colossal enough to wipe out the life she knew. She picked up her phone and reached out to the only lifeline that came to mind, 211. On the receiving end was Amanda R. Smith-Kerr. She let the young mother cry and vent, reassuring her as the woman's catharsis seemed to give her a measure of calm from the recent days of relentless storm. And then, when the young woman was ready, R. Smith-Kerr told her where in her community she could go for help. 
On March 8th, Iowa's Department of Public Health designated 211 as the public point of contact for Iowans with coronavirus questions. Since then, the lines have exploded, marking a 300% increase in call volume, according to United Way of Central Iowa, which operates 211 locally. Answering more than 35,000 queries since the pandemic began, began, the call center has shifted employee responsibilities and hired new phone specialists, including medical professionals, to meet the ever-increasing demand. As health workers study curves and scientists pinpoint peaks, Aerosmith Kerr and her colleagues spend their days talking with Iowans. Whether answering health questions, helping with unemployment claims, or just listening as callers tell their stories, this telephonic intimacy gives 211 specialists a unique window into the hearts and minds of Iowans, into their moods as the pandemic sweeps across the state. And what they've heard is that Iowans, many of whom have never used social services before, are scared, lonely, frustrated, and concerned about what's next. With a natural disaster, you know what you're up against, Aerosmith Kerr said. You're up against flooding. You're up against a fire. With this, you're up against a virus that you can't see, that there is no cure for. There's a lot of fear and uncertainty and anger, she said. We're all just a little bit angry and wondering, why is this happening? A federally designated phone number that's often used in times of emergency 211 and the people who answer the phones are information professionals confidently connecting the needy to the helpers, Aerosmith Kerr told me. But far from simply souped up middlemen, 211 specialists encounter questions ranging from quick questions about tax forms to talking through major life choices with people who have reached an obstacle so great they can't see a way to the other side. A 14-year veteran of the phones, Aerosmith Kerr is used to dealing with those in crisis. She's used to tears. She's used to people feeling helpless. She's used to holding space as folks pour out worries and problems. She's used to listening, deeply listening, which in a world of disappearing Snapchats and recorded menu options is sometimes all callers really need. It can be a lot to absorb, but Aerosmith Kerr has never thought of this part of her job as a burden. Instead, every day she gets up, logs onto the phones, and thinks to herself, this is the day we are going to help more people. Aerosmith Kerr and her colleagues are on the front line, though it's one you don't regularly hear about. They're not physically next to patients or in the field attacking the virus, but they're there. And they're often the first kind voice heard by people on their last resort. The elderly woman had gone to the grocery store that morning. Later, while watching the news, she learned that touching her face or mouth after an unknown surface was among the fastest way to spread the virus. Now she had a problem, she told Fertina McCraney, a 211 supervisor. How was she going to get her dentures out that night? The woman's request, a first for McCraney, seemed funny for a few seconds, but McCraney paused, contemplating how serious this was, not just for this woman, but anyone in her age category. How the virus, which had caused so many disruptions already, had also made this normally uncomplicated task into a minefield of worry and concerns. To think that something so simple and part of your everyday routine could change your life, she said, Within 12 hours of first being contacted by the Iowa Department of Health, 211 had shifted shifted focus from its normal calls to coronavirus, said Elizabeth Buck, president of United Way of Central Iowa. 
But within the first days of responding, 211 employees realized the pandemic presented a, a few unique challenges, not the least of which was the magnitude of the impact. The helpline received 7,595 calls in March 2019. But this March, the volume skyrocketed to 24,484. During the week of March 16th, when the governor declared a statewide public health disaster, wait times to speak with a specialist hovered around four hours, a problem 211 quickly remedied by hiring more operators and pointing callers to a callback feature which lets them hang up but keep their, line, keep their place in line. During a natural disaster, it's really hit or miss what neighborhoods are going to be impacted, Aerosmith Kerr said. Some people aren't going to feel it at all. Some people are going to lose everything. When it comes to this, though, this pandemic, we're all in the same boat. Angst of the unknown defined a lot of those early calls, Aerosmith Kerr said. People were confused and scared. They wanted context to what they were hearing and help to separate truth from rumor. They wanted someone to say their pain is real, that what, they, that what was happening to them is real. But they also wanted to discuss symptoms. This 211 realized meant they needed to hire medical professionals. Des Moines University put a call out to their students, many of whom jumped at the chance to interact with patients again. Pooja Gadamukala, a 26-year-old third-year student from Houston who was on rotation when the pandemic hit, was going stir-crazy at home and figured working the phones would keep her mind active. She and her fellow practitioners used their backgrounds along with information provided by the health department and the CDC to help guide callers. But the requirements to get a test were so strict that 211 acted as a first screen, Gada McCullough said, pointing callers with the most severe cases to connect with their primary health care professionals for a second screen before a test would be issued. 211 did not have data on how many callers they referred to be tested, but 211 Director Melissa McCoy said they were very minimal. The call centers also did not track callers' specific symptoms, but Gata McCullough said they were all over the place, everything from a cough to an upset stomach to headaches and earaches. Though this sort of telemedicine light is not what she wants for her career, being on the phone has given Gata McCullough a deeper understanding of how scary it can be for those without a medical background to parse through science speak amid rising case counts and a deluge of obituaries. A lot of people who call feel like they are wasting our time or they feel dumb because they are calling. And my first response is always, no, you did the right thing, she said. It's been really impactful to see how just listening has eased people's uncertainties, she continued. But also how having the screening line hopefully lets hospitals and providers focus on those who are truly very ill. The young woman was distraught. Her employer didn't have enough personal protective equipment, better known as PPE. She felt like she faced a choice, keep going to work or lose a paycheck to ensure her daughter didn't lose a mother. Then there were the calls from factory workers. Some callers said their employers weren't providing PPE. Others said even with PPE, there was no way to socially distance themselves on the line. These cases, the ones that came down to work our health, were the most difficult for Liz Fox Cameron, an administrative assistant redeployed as a call specialist during the pandemic. And for these callers, she had two suggestions. 
the COVID-19 legal hotline, or their local law enforcement non-emergency number. As Iowans grasped coronavirus's medical realities, 211 calls in April shifted from health concerns to financial stability, with many of the callers being newly needy, said Buck, said Buck United Way's president. These are people who were on fairly solid footing before, but whose livelihoods have been yanked away by the coronavirus riptide, Buck said. And now, more than a month into the pandemic, they are seeing their cupboards empty and their bills come due, and they haven't had the experience of asking for help. A lot of us out there, whether we care to admit it or not, are nothing more than a lost paycheck away from being in a situation where we need help with rent or we need help with food because we put all our money toward our bills, Air Smith Kerr said. But it's not just financial help callers need, Air Smith Kerr said. More than ever before, she's found people calling just to get reassurance or to voice concerns about what they are experiencing, whether that be people hoarding toilet paper or large groups gathering in parks. The extra cruelty of this disaster is that Iowans have to experience it isolated in their own bell jars of worry. They're lonely, frankly, Air Smith Kerr says, and they have no one to talk to except 211. Part of her job, Air Smith Kerr tells me, is to remember that, to put herself in the caller's shoes and respond with the kindness, the clarity they would want a specialist to have with them. If they have concerns, want to share worries, want to just vent a little about what's going on, we'll stay on the phone with them until they're done, she said. That's what we're here for. There's a quote Air Smith Kerr has, hasn't been able to shake out of her head recently. It's ascribed in multiple films to a Japanese general who, after seeing America's reaction to the Pearl Harbor attack, reportedly said, I fear all we have done is to awaken a sleeping giant. In a roundabout way, Air Smith Kerr feels that coronavirus has again awakened America's sleeping giant. The overall response may have been slower than some people wanted, but she sees programs coming together now. And she knows that when Iowans respond to a neighbor in need, they do so in spades. In just the past few weeks, she has seen homeless shelters move compromised residents to empty apartments and food pantries shift from a grocery store, a grocery-like setup, to pre-bagging items for curbside pickup and even delivery. Although Iowans are physically distancing, we're not emotionally distancing, she tells me. And from her perspective, we're still connected. We're still all in this together. She's not the type of person to say that in the Pollyanna put it on a poster and hang it in a conference room way. She means it. And if you listen to her long enough, you'll believe it too. Her current hope is that Iowans' benevolence extends long after social distancing ends because fellow Hawkeyes dealing with the fallout will need help for weeks and months to come. Another cruelty of coronavirus is that folks who were living on the edge before are going to be those most affected by this shutdown, she says. But 211 will still be there. Aerosmith Kerr said her colleagues will still be letting people cry, still helping them through helplessness. And still holding space, even when the only thing a person needs is to hear the sound of someone else's voice. And that article was by Courtney Crowder, the Register's Iowa columnist who traverses the state's 99 counties, telling Iowans stories. And our next article is titled, How to Help Your Favorite Iowa Causes. Fear is palpable in the calls that come in to the 211 helpline 
designated to answer Iowans' coronavirus-related questions. The COVID-19 pandemic has triggered waves of job losses and resulted in thousands of the newly needy Iowans who never pictured themselves having to seek help, Iowa columnist Courtney Crowder reported in her look at the helpline's work. She led her story by describing a call from a single mother of four who had been laid off. Her savings were depleted, bills were piling up, and unemployment benefits were yet to arrive. Local nonprofits have geared up to help Iowans like that single mother, but they are faced with soaring needs for food, rental assistance, child care, mental health care, and other basic services. And the pandemic has hurt nonprofits too. The need for social distancing has forced the cancellation of annual fundraisers, and many individuals and businesses that have been reliable donors find themselves cash strapped too. On Tuesday, the Global Giving Tuesday Now initiative will, will seek to help nonprofits raise money to meet the increased needs brought on by the spread of COVID-19 and subsequent economic shutdown. It builds off the popularity of Giving Tuesday, usually held on the Tuesday after Thanksgiving, to encourage charitable donations during the holidays. Metro Des Moines leaders hope Iowans will use this day to rally around local nonprofits in their own time of need. They're promoting the GiveDSM.org website as an easy way to learn about local nonprofits and how to donate. Local groups say more and more Iowans are in need. Dylan Lamp, an executive with the Food Bank of Iowa, told Register reporter Sarah LeBlanc that the Food Bank has seen a lot of people needing help for the first time. While the Food Bank appreciates food donations, financial donations are especially helpful for bulk purchasing and buying hard-to-donate items such as fresh fruit, milk, and eggs. Layoffs, furloughs, and other challenges mean a lot of Iowans who usually donate to their favorite causes might not be able to now. But I'm confident Iowans will do what they can to help their neighbors. As Elizabeth Buck, president of United Way of Central Iowa, says in a video encouraging participation in Giving Tuesday Now, in Greater Des Moines, we don't back down from a challenge. We step up, we lead, and we get done what needs to be done. And that piece was by Carol Hunter, who is the Register's executive editor. And our next article is titled, Two More at State-Run Facility Test Positive for COVID-19. Two additional residents at a state-run facility that provides care to Iowans with severe disabilities have tested positive for COVID-19. The Iowa Department of Human Services said Friday that three residents at the Woodward Resource Center have now tested positive for the respiratory illness caused by the novel coronavirus. The agency confirmed a presumptive COVID-19 case announced earlier this week. DHS spokesman Matt Hyland also said an employee at the Woodward Center has tested positive for COVID-19. It's the first time a staffer at the facility has tested positive. The three Woodward Center residents have been moved to a separate on-campus housing, according to Highland. They will transition back to their primary residence after their symptoms improve and they meet specific criteria. The agency had previously announced that five employees at four different facilities had tested positive for the virus. The announcement Friday means six DHS employees who work at five different facilities have tested positive to date. The agency has about 2,200 staff at its six state facilities, according to Highland. 
The Woodward resident, whose presumptive COVID-19 case was reported this week, was considered the first known resident at any of the agency's facilities to test positive. No staffer at the Glenwood Resource Center has tested positive for the illness. Both the Woodward and Glenwood facilities house individuals with severe disabilities. The six facilities under DHS control provide care to some of the state's most vulnerable populations. One of the infected staff members works at the state mental health facility in Cherokee. Another works at a similar facility in Independence. One staffer works at the Civil Commitment Unit for Sexual Offenders at the Cherokee Mental Health Facility. Two staffers work at the Eldora Boys State Training School. The agency had previously noted that most of the DHS employees had not been on site for multiple days before testing positive. And our next article is titled, Iowans Decry Ballot Requests. Some are concerned forms could reveal personal information, such as birth date. When Karen Riding received her absentee ballot request form in the mail this week, she was surprised that the information she was asked to share would appear on the backside of an open postcard-style form. Wow, she remembers thinking, they shouldn't be asking this. The forms, which have been mailed to every registered voter in Iowa, asks voters to share their voter ID number or driver's license number, their full name, birth date, and signature. There is no envelope to conceal personal information. Writing, a marketing consultant with experience in direct mail campaigns, was among several Iowans who contacted the Des Moines Register to share concerns about the form. The fact that you're giving your ID number or your driver's license number and your signature, if anybody gets that, I mean, that could be used against people all the time, Writing said. It just doesn't feel safe to me. Writing lives downtown, so she said she plans to walk her completed form to the county auditor's office to return it in person. The ballot request forms are part of an unprecedented effort by Iowa Secretary of State Paul Pate, a Republican, to encourage Iowans to vote by mail ahead of the state's June 2nd primary as the new coronavirus makes it dangerous for people to gather in person. His office has mailed the nearly 2 million forms to Iowa's registered voters and included paid postage. Voters who mail back the request forms will then receive a ballot in the mail, which they will need to fill out and return. In-person voting begins May 4th. Heidi Burhans, the state's director of elections, said in a statement provided to county auditors and to the register that the Secretary of State's office is aware that some people are unhappy with the postcard-style form, but that it was recommended by the United States Postal Service and by a vendor and that a similar format has been used in the past by campaigns and advocacy groups. The USPS has assured that information sent through the mail is safe and viewed only by employees of the USPS who are bound by federal laws regarding confidentiality, Burhan said. Nicole Hill, a spokesman for the United States Postal Service, said that the service employs a a robust process to ensure mail is processed and delivered correctly. The federal laws governing that process are enforced by the Postal Inspection Service. The U.S. mail remains a secure, efficient, and effective means for citizens and campaigns to participate in the electoral process, and the Postal Service is proud of our role as an important component of the nation's democratic process, Hill said in a statement. 
Polk County Auditor Polk County Auditor Jamie Fitzgerald said Thursday that his office shared the Secretary of State's guidance on Facebook so that voters would be aware of their options. Some people filled them out without taping them. Some people taped them. Some people put them in an envelope, so it's kind of a mixed bag, he said, of a large batch of mail his office received Thursday. Burhan's statement provided guidance to Iowans on how to fold and tape the form closed if they are concerned about privacy. They also have the option of putting the postcard in an envelope and mailing it to their county auditor's office. If they use an envelope, the voter will have to pay for postage. If you prefer, you can cut off the bottom panel just above the steps to request an absentee ballot, fold the remaining two panels together, tape it to the top and sides and mail it, or you can fold the bottom panel in, then fold the top panel over so that the county auditor's address appears on the outside. This method involves no tearing, cutting, or ripping. Then tape it to the top and sides and mail it, Burhan's statement said. If voters wish to tape their ballot request form closed, the Secretary of State's office recommends using at least three-fourths of an inch of scotch tape on the, three si- on the three open sides. The tape should not cover the barcode or paid postage box in the right corner of the postcard. The Secretary of State's office said the request form is likely to be rejected if masking tape is used, staples are used, only one side is taped, the barcode is obscured, or not enough scotch tape is used and it breaks open. And our next article is titled Des Moines Rings in Virtual Downtown Farmers Market. The 2020 Downtown Farmers Market began Saturday, as it always does, with bell ringing, live music, and a toast. There was just one difference. The season opening event was entirely virtual, streamed on Facebook Live. We can't be on Court Avenue, but we're going to have to make the best of this and have a great time, Market Director Kelly Foss said as she began the market meetup event at 8 a.m. The meetup stream lasted just over an hour and garnered 17,000 views, according to the Greater Des Moines Partnership, which runs the market. Viewers left 780 comments during the broadcast. On a normal Saturday, the in-person downtown farmer's market averages 25,000 visitors. The stream featured over a dozen vendors, including farmers, bakers, and artists. Several vendors sent in videos of themselves at their farms or kitchens, preparing the products they would be selling at the market. Most artisans directed people to their online stores, urging Iowans to order products for pickup or delivery. Another common thread between the sellers, everyone is missing Court Avenue. I can't wait to get back to normal and start going to farmer's markets again, said Mike Banstra of Frisian Farms after a demonstration of his cheese-making process. Can't wait to see everyone again. In a video interview with Foss, Randy Schnebby of RS Welding Studio said this would be his 21st year selling at the market. The farmer's market has been tremendous for us, Schnebby said. We get connected with so many people. We've met so many friends there. It's almost like another family. Foss agreed. I want to give everyone virtual hugs and high fives today because that's what we do on opening day, she said, except not usually virtually. Foss and co-host Jerry Lawrenson, a founder of DSM TV Live, also featured a table full of baked goods and produce, examining the products one by one and discussing the vendors which contributed them. 
Iowa-based blues rock band Opus Taylor perform classic rock covers between vendor spotlights. There are two more virtual markets scheduled on May 9th and 16th. The Greater Des Moines Partnership said in a Tuesday news release that it will continue to consider next steps for safely hosting an outdoor market. Cheers to the farmer's market, Foss said, holding up a shot of wheatgrass juice. We'll be back as soon as we can. And up next, our article is titled, Wife, ICE Detainee Should Be Released. Three Guatemalan men jailed by immigration officials in March should be released amid concerns of COVID-19 in Iowa correction facilities, advocates in eastern Iowa say. Jose Cirillo, 31, and his two brothers-in-law were taken into custody by immigration, customs, and enforcement officers during a raid March 4th in Cedar Rapids. His wife, Juana Brito, said Cerillo has been hospitalized for a heart condition since he was taken to Lynn County Jail, where he's being held. Two cases of COVID-19 have been confirmed by workers at the Lynn County Jail. The virus is especially dangerous for those with pre-existing health conditions. Brito told the Des Moines Register she's worried her husband will be deported or killed by the virus. I'm fearful for both. We're just here to work. We come here because we have to, out of a need, she said, through a translator. If one of us gets it and we ended up dying, we won't see each other again. Brito's door was kicked down and her house searched during the arrest of her husband, even though he was not accused of a violent crime, she said. Also detained March 4th were Brito's brothers, Juan Daniel, 18, and Jacinto, 23. All the men should be freed because they are not public safety threats, officials with the, with the nonprofit Iowa City Catholic Worker House say. They were each detained for processing false documents or entering the country illegally, court records show. Multiple correctional facilities in Iowa and across the nation have tried to mitigate coronavirus outbreak concerns by releasing low-level offenders to allow for better, better social distancing. ICE has released about 700 detainees at higher, risk, at higher risk for severe illness as a result of the coronavirus, according to an April 15th web post on the agency's site. More than 400 people in ICE custody nationwide have tested positive for the virus. The Iowa City Catholic Workers' House, a nonprofit that assists immigrants and refugees, is working with state officials to extend that effort to these three men. Workers' House in Workers' House in April wrote a letter asking Governor Kim Reynolds, ICE, and Lynn County officials to release the men. The ACLU in April released a message signed by 37 attorneys and advocacy groups demanding several things of ICE, including the release of all older ICE detainees or those with pre-existing health conditions that make them most susceptible to serious effects of coronavirus. Two Iowa jails, Lynn and Polk counties, and an Iowa prison have reported a total of about 30 cases between two inmates and employees in the past two weeks. Most immigrant detainees are accused of low-level, nonviolent, victimless crimes. They are not a danger to the public or a flight risk, the, le the letter said. State governments and ICE have demonstrably failed to prevent COVID-19 outbreaks in other detention centers across the country. An ICE spokesman declined to comment on the letters or the details of the men's cases. 
If they have been hardworking residents of the area, haven't caused anybody any trouble, and they are agreeing to cooperate, then I don't see any reason why they need to be detained in these facilities, said Lynn County Supervisor Stacy Walker a day after speaking with Brito. Our criminal legal system has already basically been over backwards to make sure we are only locking up the people who are a threat to society. Juana Brito still gets emotional when talking about what happened on March 4th. She, Jose Cerillo, and their 8-year-old daughter were sleeping when there was a knock at the door about 7 a.m. As her husband went to see who was there, the door was broken in and about 10 uniformed officers crowded her apartment. Video taken at the scene shows a door snapped off its hinges. Jose Cerillo was taken into custody. The officers told the woman to call her brothers and demand they turn themselves in, she told the register. They took her phone from her when she spoke in her native dialect instead of Spanish and told Jacinto Brio that his niece's freedom depended on his incarceration. They told us that they would take me away to one place and my daughter to another, she said. My daughter was awake. We were both crying. Rosa Brito Pastor, Jacinto's wife, remembers getting that call from a distraught Juana Brito. She watched as her husband talked about turning himself in. A review of federal and state court records did not show any charges for violent crimes against, against Jose Cerillo, Jacinto Brito, or Juan Brito. About 10 minutes later, Brito Pastor and Jacinto Brito heard a knock at the door. Realizing what his sister and niece had just gone through, Jacinto Brio surrendered to the immigration officers outside his home. Brito Pastor soon learned that her husband's brother, Juan Daniel, who had been living with the couple and their child, was also detained on his way to work. March 4th was a day off for Jacinto Brito, so he had planned on taking his family shopping for new clothes. He has not seen his wife or young son, Pedro, since. It's been so difficult, Brito Pastor said. I don't have anyone to talk about how I feel. When the baby cries, sometimes I just start crying too, and we just cry together. Jacinto Brito told the register via phone April 16th that he is afraid of the coronavirus because he has not been given personal protective equipment and is bunking in one area with eight others. I'm more scared now, especially when seeing it getting into the jails, he said. Gardner said each inmate in the jail was given a mask April 20th. He said the dormitories and cells designated for ICE detainees may be multi-person holding areas, but they are less than half full. The effort to round up the men last month coincided with immigration efforts across the country, according to the New York Times. ICE spokesman Sean Newdower referred questions about immigration enforcement during the pandemic to a COVID-19 page on the agency's website, which is updated sporadically. The agency continues to re- continues its review for people who may be released in light of the pandemic. Decisions to release people occur every single day on a case-by-case basis, he said in a statement. There are 29,675 ICE detainees nationwide as of last week. About 1,070 of them have been tested for COVID-19 and 522 have tested positive, according to the agency's websites. No positives have been reported in Iowa. ICE has reduced its detainee population by more than 4,000 people since March 1st and has decreased new admissions, according to an April 15th statement on the agency's website. 
It's also screening possible deportees before sending them back to their native countries, the website says. This move came after multiple nations reported that American deportation flights were injecting their countries with the virus. These changes are of little solace to Brito's family or the advocates who work with them. They should not have been there in the first place, David Goodnurse of the Iowa City Catholic Worker House said. Chief among the family's concerns is the fact that two of the men are being held at the Lynn County Jail, where two employees have tested positive for COVID-19 and about 10 inmates are showing symptoms. Juana and Jacinto's brother, younger brother, Juan Brito, was detained and sent to a facility in St. Paul, Minnesota. Sorio, the man with the heart condition, has already pleaded guilty to illegally re-entering the country. He was deported at least once before court records show. He has agreed to cooperate with authorities, his family and advocates say. Still, a judge ordered April 27th that he remain detained while awaiting a sentencing date. Jacinto Brito plans to plead guilty, court records show, but like his brother-in-law, his sentencing date has not been set. Their families say it's best for everyone if they're home while they wait for their next court proceeding. Juana Brito is struggling to deal with losing three loved ones at once. She and her daughter now live with an acquaintance in Lynn County. My daughter can't sleep, she said. She cries for her dad because he's not here. The Lynn County Jail currently has about 230 inmates, about half of its capacity, because of COVID-19, said Sheriff Brian Gardner. It's housing three people on immigration detainers and another nine under joint warrants from the U.S. Marshal Service and ICE and trying to enforce social distancing guidelines, he said. Brito Pastor, meanwhile, said she wants her husbands and brothers safe from the virus. They're not criminals. We just came here to make a better life, and so we have something, she said. I just want to see him again. And our next article is titled, DMPS to have virtual graduations during June. Des Moines Public Schools will hold virtual graduation ceremonies in June to help reduce the spread of the novel coronavirus. After more than a century of graduates walking across a stage to be handed their diploma, 2020 is a year when a new approach is necessary, the district said in a news release. Each ceremony will feature brief remarks from the principal and a student speaker, a roll call of 2020 graduates, and recognition of awards. The school will schedule a day for graduates to have their photos taken for inclusion in the virtual commencements. While all of us at Des Moines Public Schools miss our students, we feel especially bad for our seniors having to endure the most unusual ending to a school year any of us has ever experienced, Superintendent Tom Ahart said in the release. The ceremonies will be held June 27th and shown on DMPS-TV, Mediacom Channel 12.1 or 812, the district's website and social media pages. In some ways, this decision was harder than deciding not to reopen schools, but given the lack of clarity and transparency around the COVID-19 pandemic, this is the only decision that's in the interest of the health and well-being of our students and families, Ahart said. Graduates will pick up their caps and gowns in mid-May. They will be notified by their high schools with the details the district said. And our next article is titled, Police, Officer Shoots Man Who Drew a Gun. 
An Omaha man drew and fired a gun at a Council Bluffs police officer Saturday morning, compelling the officer to shoot and injure the suspect, police said. In a news release, Council Bluffs police said the officer, who wasn't identified, arrived at the Bucky's Convenience Store at 3434 Nebraska Avenue at 8 a.m. A Bucky's employee told the officer a man had stolen a gas can. The officer stopped the man, 34-year-old Jimmy J. Carr, at the front of the store. Police said Carr then drew a gun from his pocket and fired. The officer returned fire and hit Carr in the left hip area. Carr was arrested and taken to a hospital where he was treated for his non-life-threatening injury. No one else was injured. The Council Bluffs Police Department and the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigations will investigate the shooting. And next up, officer becomes DMPD's first case of COVID-19. The Des Moines Police Department confirmed Friday that one of its employees has tested positive for the novel coronavirus. An officer in the department's patrol division showed symptoms this week and has since been isolated in accordance with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the Iowa Department of Public Health guidelines, according to a news release from Des Moines Police. Department officials are working to identify any co-workers who came in contact with the officer and who may need to be tested, Des Moines Police Sergeant Paul Parizic said. No other department employees are showing symptoms. In addition to the disinfection procedures already in place, a focused, deep disinfection of the officer's workspace has been completed, the release states. The department has more than 250 sworn officers working in its patrol, traffic, tactical neighborhood services, and school resource units. Police will continue to provide full services and monitor employees' health according to the release. And finally, this hour, two die in house fire in Washington County. An investigation is underway in a fire that killed two people at a home in eastern Iowa. The fire broke out at around 2.30 a.m. Saturday near the town of Washington in Washington County, KCRG-TV reported. Authorities identified the victims as Sherry Lynn Birch, that's B-E-R-T-S-C-H, age 58, and Michael Lee Shannon, S-H-A-N-N-A-N, age 66. No other details about the fire have been released at this time. And that's it for our first hour of the Register on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Up next, we'll give a shout out to all our listeners who are celebrating a birthday today. I'm your reader, Jenny Rector. Thank you for listening.